Nick, I told you I don't think it's a good idea to go out with the boss. Have it your way. You're fired. I'll pick you up tomorrow at 8. A dancer slash welder must conquer her fears so she can pursue her dreams. Join us as we discuss the words that are a death sentence in a movie, our favorite soundtracks, and why you should never sell all your rights. Oh, what a feeling when we find out if 1983's Flashdance stands the test of time. James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? James says gladiator with the glut Allen says as a father blah blah It's the test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Test of time James and Allen have their say Do the movies you love still hold up today? Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Test of Time. I'm James Brief, and joining me as always to talk about films from the past and to see if they still stand the test of time today, joining me as always is Alan Noah. That is me. How you doing, James? I'm good. Um, this is one of those uh, films that neither of us had seen before, Flashdance. I, I mean, we both knew about it. It's one of those films before our time. I mean, it's from 1983. We were alive, but it's not the kind of thing, uh, you know, three-year-old Al and James were watching. Maybe. Maybe our parents watched it one night while we were, like, playing on the floor and we just don't remember. That's possible, but it's certainly not something that connected with us so that we had to watch it over and over in our childhood because I had never seen this film before. No, no, me neither. And I saw it was the 40th anniversary and I was like, okay, got to do it because I've wanted to watch this movie for a very, very long time. I consider myself a fan of 80s movies in general. And this is like an iconic movie that I'd never seen. So we had to do it. And even though I'd never seen the movie, I know the song, and I think pretty much everyone knows the song. This is an Oscar-winning song. How does it go, Al? Oh, it goes, What a feeling! Please believe it! Do, 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 do. I love it, I love it. That was me. That was not Irene Cara, in case anyone was wondering. That was me, Alan Noah. Why aren't you on America's Got Talent? You don't want that level of superstardom? Is that it? I think so. I, I think I just like being like a regular person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Flashdance was written uh, by Giorgio Moroder, who's like a very influential musician, producer. Uh, he's considered like the godfather of disco. This is a movie with a very popular soundtrack this is on the list of you know all-time best-selling albums which whatever albums are on that list not really going to change at this point now that people don't really buy albums anymore some people do but to a far lesser extent no new album is going to sell 20 million copies and the flash dance soundtrack sold 20 million copies give or take 
I mean, it's a soundtrack of the 80s, uh, early 80s. Uh, I mean, it's got Maniac and Oh, What a Feeling. There were a lot more songs on in the film that were not on the soundtrack, like I Love Rock and Roll. It's not something that I would buy today, but, you know, if you're living in 1983 and you want, like, the popular music of the time, soundtracks were a great way to get, you know, half a dozen artists that you like and half a dozen artists you might not like. But you get a big variety, and this is there's a reason why it sold 20 million copies. It makes sense. Like, it would have been 20 million streams today. Uh, you know, it would have been hundreds of millions of streams today. Right. All right, what's your all-time favorite soundtrack? Or you can pick a couple. It doesn't have to be just one. Well, it's hard to say because, uh, I mean, are you counting scores? Because then you got all of John Williams in there, and then you got yeah. uh, Hans Zimmer's and Alan Silvestri's, and that would be way too difficult to uh, to try to pick off the top of my head. No scores. That, that, okay. That's fair. That is a very hard question in general, especially for you because you love film scores. So just an album with songs, not a score album. I'd go with an easy one. I'd go with uh, Forrest Gump. I mean, okay. I think that's probably one of the best soundtracks ever. Uh, I probably like just about every song on there. And it's a double CD, so they make it so that the, I think the second CD is the score and the first uh, CD is just the American music. So no, no, one. no, no, that's not right. And I know because I have that CD and I have listened to that double CD many, many times. It's all songs and the very, very last track, just one track is the uh, Alan Silvestri theme. Okay, that's it. Yeah, I put that great Sylvester theme at the end. But that, yeah. that's my vote. You know, and are you asking, what is my favorite? Yeah, I'd probably say that one. You know, of course, there's the greatest ones. How many Diamond albums did the Bodyguard sell? The Bodyguard soundtrack sold about 45 million copies. And there are honestly a lot of other movies that we've done on the podcast that have done very well with their soundtracks. Titanic was big, Dirty Dancing, Footloose, The Bodyguard. Top Gun, that was a huge, huge album. Uh, the Big Chill, that was a really good soundtrack. The Breakfast Club, uh, that, that's a famous soundtrack. Um, you know, I think one of the first defining soundtracks that ever came out uh, before our time, but Saturday Night Fever. I mean, that's probably the first soundtrack that started like, you know, you could sell millions and millions of copies that, that, that had to have gone diamond that's 10 million copies like uh, there's probably like 20 albums that have made diamond. Yeah, Saturday Night Fever was a really big one. We will do that on the podcast. I would like to rewatch that movie. And honestly, I really did like that album. I had that on CD and I listened to that a lot. But in terms of like personal favorites, I really do love the Rushmore soundtrack. I know we just talked about that movie not that long ago. That is a really, really great album. And all of the Wes Anderson movies have fantastic soundtracks. Almost Famous has a good soundtrack. We'll have to do that movie on the podcast. Another Cameron Crowe film that we did review, uh, Singles, that had a great soundtrack. Uh, that had yes. a great alternative Seattle soundtrack. Um, yeah. Cameron Crowe is always famous for having uh, great songs in his movies. Uh, Jerry Maguire had uh, that uh, Bruce Springsteen song, Secret Garden, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you could depend on him for a good soundtrack. Uh, Spike Lee's uh, Do the Right Thing, that was really famous. That had a lot of stuff. And every teenager in the 90s had to get the uh, uh, the BMG or Columbia House, you know, 10 CDs for the price of one thing. And I had the Batman and Robin soundtrack. Terrible film, good soundtrack. Had like U2 on there and uh, Bone Thugs and Harmony, R.E.M. That was like when 
Jewel was big and Smashing Pumpkins were on there. Oh no, U2 was uh, I think on uh, Batman Forever. Smashing Pumpkins, they had a couple songs on the uh, Batman and Robin soundtrack. Yeah, it was pretty cool. More recently though, Guardians of the Galaxy, that movie had a phenomenal soundtrack. A lot of like 70s rock Great, great songs there. Absolutely. Uh, was that uh, song from the Karate Kid? You're the best around. Yeah. What about it? Was that from the Karate Kid soundtrack or was that just on that film? That was from that soundtrack. And Joe Esposito, who sang that song, also has a song on the Flashdance soundtrack, Lady, Lady, Lady. So he had songs on two big 80s soundtrack albums. And I'll bet for someone like you, but not so much for me, although I said it was fun. I'll bet uh, like the Muppet movie, that would be a fun soundtrack for you. Sure, but that's also a musical, so that's kind of a little different. Yeah, that's almost a little cheat. Um, of course, Cool as Ice would have had, uh, you know, some vanilla ice tracks on there, so that was probably ripping. Name one song on that soundtrack. Don't look it up. Look at me. Eye contact. Name one song. Cool as Ice. Nope. It's not called Cool as Ice? The opening song? Maybe. I have no idea. <laughs> Could be. Who the fuck knows? And who the fuck cares? I bought it. No, you didn't. No, I didn't. But let's talk about Flashdance, the movie. So this is about a young woman named Alex, played by Jennifer Beals, who works a day job in a steel mill and dances at a bar at night. Alex begins dating her boss, Nick, but she frequently erupts at him in anger. Meanwhile, Alex's friend Richie decides to pursue his dream of becoming a stand-up comedian, and Richie's girlfriend Jeannie hopes to become a figure skater. In the end, Alex decides to audition for a prestigious dance conservatory and follow her dream. So when this movie came out, was it as successful as its soundtrack? Uh, this film was uh, a very low-budget film. It had a $7 million budget, and it opened on April 15th, 1983. It opened at number two with $4 million, and then it spent three weeks at number one. This film, you know, it had no big stars in it. Uh, Jennifer Beals was, was not a, you know, that was not a box office draw, but, you know, it was a box office draw was what we just talked about, the soundtrack, and what yes. was the biggest thing for teenagers in 1983. MTV. That's right. Music television, their slogan, which was literally a teenager saying, I want my MTV. Because I think you had to, like, ask your cable company to make sure they carried it in the beginning, probably. Um, The film got a huge word of mouth. It was uh, very, very successful. It ended up with $92 million. Uh, It was actually in the top 10 in 1983. Really? Yeah. Wow. You can tell me right now what the number one film of 1983 was. Return of the Jedi. That's correct. Number two, we did review it on this podcast. Here's a piece of trivia. Until Titanic, this film had held the record for most weeks at number one. It is a film that was beloved by all of America, but today would be absolutely hated by half of America because basically it's a movie about a man in drag. Oh, Tootsie. Tootsie, yeah, that was number two. And uh, coming in number three, 
Flashdance. Wow. Number three film. And, you know, you have huge films from 83. You have uh, Trading Places at number four, War Games. You have a James Bond up there. The uh, sequel to Saturday Night Fever, uh, Staying Alive. I always heard it was a big flop, but it made $65 million, number seven. Uh, We also reviewed Risky Business, uh, Mr. Mom at number nine, and uh, National Lampoon's Vacation. Um, We have not done. Nope, but we will. Uh, We did number 11, Superman 3, and we will do number 12 at some point. I've always wanted to see this film. I've always been curious about it. Um, 48 hours. Same. Never seen it, but curious to see it. Yeah. Um, No companies had any faith in this film. Like I said, it only had a $7 million budget, no-name star. The uh, distributor apparently had so little faith in it that they sold a quarter of the rights to it a couple weeks before the film was released. Do you know who they sold the rights uh, of the film to? A quarter of it. No, who? They sold it to these very upstart producers, a guy named Don Simpson. And do you know who his partner is? Uh, Jerry Bruckheimer. Yes, Jerry Bruckheimer, responsible for films like uh, Top Gun and, uh, you know, the biggest films of the 80s uh, and the 90s even. Don Simpson later uh, passed away in the 90s. But all the Transformers, all the bad boy films, this is all from Flashdance. Like, this is where it all started. But uh, this film, um, apparently it's uh, based on a true story, based on a true story of a woman named Maureen Martyr, and she was paid a couple grand for the rights to the film. And even though the film made $200 million worldwide, she never got a penny more than that. And apparently she actually sued the studio, and they ruled against her by saying... While it's kind of, in retrospect, unfortunate that she didn't make any money, there was nothing really uh, deceitful. If she signed a contract and it was a completely valid contract and no one tried to deceive her and they thought this movie was going to bomb and then it turns out to make a lot of money, you could see the argument of like, dude, just give her a million bucks. You still made bank on the movie. Who gives a crap? Do the right thing. Avoid the bad press. But I could also see the counterpoint, especially from like a lawyer's point of view of like, hey, she signed a contract and that's what it was for. If you give her more money after the fact, then guess what? Anytime you sign any contract, someone's going to come back later and say, nope, it was unfair. You should have given me more. You're creating a bad precedent there. So, hey, sometimes some contracts, someone gets a bad deal, someone gets a good deal. That's life. I'm not saying that I think that's the right thing to do, but I could just kind of see it from like the studio's point of view, the studio's lawyer's point of view of like, eh, sucks for her, but sorry. Yeah, I mean, these things happen all the time. Uh, Famously, uh, the the guy who invented uh, or founded Victoria's Secret, he sold it for a relatively low amount. And then these venture capitalists turned it into the, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars place and he had nothing. And uh, the other famous story, uh, Superman, the creators in the 30s, like sold it uh, for like, I don't know, like 10 bucks or something. I think later in like the 80s and 70s, their descendants eventually sued. And I think they, they get some money. I think uh, the, so. The Siegel and Schuster families. But yeah. um, I, I think the lesson is never sell 100% of something you own. Just in case, you know, just get a piece of that. Because even if it was 1%, you know, $200 million, you get yourself uh, $2 bucks right there. Right, right, right. 
but let's get into the movie. So there's a lot of dancing in the movie, which is not surprising. It's called Flashdance. But there's not a lot of substance to the plot. And I was surprised at just how much dancing there is, where you'll see Alex, played by Jennifer Beals, do like a whole dance to like a whole song, you know, like three, three and a half minutes. And then shortly thereafter, she's doing another dance to another full song. There's a lot of that in this movie. I wasn't expecting that much dancing in Flashdance. How about you? I was expecting this much dancing, but um, it was very obvious that none of this was uh, Jennifer Beals. The lighting was very dark, and you could tell these are doubles. And, you know, when you're seeing an actor on a film, like, doing amazing piano, that's fine that you know it's not them. But when it's dancing, I would honestly say, like, just get a dancer that can act. Uh, I mean, I think Jennifer Beals did fine uh, as an actress in the film, but this is not Hamlet here. You don't need to have the best actress here. You need someone that can be competent enough for this role. And I think that would have been the way to go because I actually thought some of the dance numbers were quite beautiful, but it was just like I was watching like stock footage and it was obvious that they were just kind of stitching in this other woman. And then there's a quick close up on her face and it's like some of these dance moves are not that complicated. Like she could have done some of them. It seemed like a hundred percent of the dance moves were by this stunt double And it was just ridiculous. Yeah, it was distracting at times. When she's dancing to Maniac, there are a lot of shots of whoever the dancer was, her crotch. You know, just like her upper thighs and great body. You know, I get it. But like, you would think that for these manic dance moves, you would want to see the full body, the whole person doing the dance. And... If you're going to fill your movie with dances, then have the star of the movie be able to do the dancing. That's not unreasonable. It really just kept taking me out of it. Kevin Bacon, if you're going to be in Footloose, you need to know how to dance Kevin Bacon, and he does. It would be as ridiculous as getting a body double for him. Right, right, right. Let's talk a little bit about Alex and Nick's relationship. First off, the age difference, that was taking me out of it, because She looks like a kid. And apparently when they made this movie, she was 18 and he was 36. So literally double her age. He kind of looks double her age. And it felt a little creepy to me. I mean, if she's 18, she's an adult. So whatever. But also he's her boss. And, you know, she rebuffs him at first. She's like, I don't want to go out with you. You're my boss. That's a bad idea and he's very pushy at one point he says okay if you won't go out with me because i'm your boss you're fired pick you up at eight and it's not immediately clear if that's a joke later on we do see her back at the steel mill so i guess it was a joke and she didn't take him seriously but she went out with him anyway that's still like you know a clear power dynamic and that was just a little icky to me You know, in a post-Me Too era, you can really see it a lot easier. I wonder if the 80s audience saw it the same way. 
Right. And the way she acts throughout their relationship where he does something that she disapproves of, like he goes and has dinner with his ex-wife and then she flips out and throws a rock through his window and then he explains no no I'm not cheating on you I just have dinner with my ex-wife every now and again and she's like oh I'm sorry like she acts in a very volatile way which you can sort of understand if she's 18 years old yeah you know you're wild and hormonal and not always thinking in a logical way so it makes sense but yeah, then it also still adds to the the creepiness of the relationship. Also, the whole thing with his ex-wife doesn't make sense because are they friendly and they go out to the ballet every now and again? Also, though, then they see her at a restaurant and she is super, super bitchy to Alex. Like if they got along, wouldn't she just be like, oh, hi, nice to meet you. Have a good night. Yeah, but at least in the restaurant, Alex has a great line back to her and she says, I fucked your ex-husband's brains out last night. <laughs> and then the ex-wife has nothing to say and she walks out. Um, you know, I know the trope they were going for. Alex, uh, you know, sees a beautiful woman through the window of the house and she erupts in a fit of anger, which is understandable. The guy, you know, bent over backwards to say how much he's into her. And then he's got this beautiful woman in his house. And yes, like a trope, it's not what she thinks. It was something innocent, but... It should have just been his sister, you know, sleeping over. That would just make it so much easier, I think, you know. I didn't mind the ex-wife being involved in that. It was almost to, like, give her random reasons to, like, shriek and uh, just more plot between dance numbers. But, like, if you're going to have the ex-wife be a friendly presence in one scene, then you can't make her an antagonist two scenes later. That just doesn't make sense. Uh, Alex's relationship with Hannah, who's like her mentor, who's like encouraging her to try out for this conservatory, that is fine throughout most of the movie. But I mean, Jesus Christ, do they telegraph it when Alex says to Hannah, I just don't know what I'd ever do without you. I think I even said it out loud. I'm like, oh, she's dead. You know, and then, of course, then she goes to see her later. And, oh, you didn't hear Hannah died like you can't say something like i don't know what i'd do without you in a movie that's a death sentence don't say that to anyone you love right and i mean i was fine with her dying she her death serves a purpose uh plot wise it's a trope i mean it happens like the mighty ducks films the nice old man hans dies and the wise mentor he passes away that's fine i i, I yeah. didn't mind that that's literally in the book of the hero's journey Right, right, right. It, it, it's fine. You know, Obi-Wan Kenobi has to pass away for, you know, the next generation to, to take over. Sure. You know, I do work in a, a part of Brooklyn that's uh, it's a very hip area, but it's also, it's an old Polish neighborhood. So I learn a lot of Polish things, and there's all these Polish pastries and uh, patients that speak Polish, and I, I, I the duck on my stethoscope, I, I know it's a kaczka, that's a duck in Polish. Oh. There were a lot of Polish jokes in this film. And Polish jokes were our nation's kind of uh, dumb jokes. Like, did you hear about the Polish uh, army with the submarine that had a screen door? Ha ha ha. Personally, I never quite understood why was Poland the butt of the jokes. Not only these jokes, yeah, they don't, they don't stand up. But 
when I was uh, uh, down in Brazil and I was out with my friends at a stand-up comic in uh, Brazil, they were making Portuguese jokes about Portuguese people. And the jokes were all the same jokes that I had heard, you know, as a kid about, you know, blonde or Polish or something like that. I assume probably... Every country probably has their either their region that they make these same jokes for, but they definitely did stand out for me. And they're definitely, uh, you know, don't stand the test of time. But there was a, basically a guy does an entire riff on Polish people. Right, right. That character is Richie, and his goal, his dream is to become a stand up comic. And nothing wrong with that, but yeah, his jokes are all just really offensive. Also, they're all just like, set up punchline, set up punchline, set up punchline. Usually, there are exceptions, but usually stand-up comics, especially now, do bits. They tell stories. They build to jokes. And maybe there's a little joke along the way, but it's not just like, what do you call a Pollock with a whatever? Like, there's more to it than that. And his whole thing just doesn't stand the test of time. Oh, yeah. He's no Mitch Hedberg. Exactly, exactly. But there is something to that character where he has a dream, too. It's not just Alex who wants to be a dancer. There's Richie who wants to be a comic. And Richie's girlfriend, Jeannie, she wants to be an ice skater. And the thing that I thought was maybe a little bit interesting about this movie is that it's not that they all make it. They don't all have their dreams come true. Richie decides to go to L.A. and try to be a stand-up comic, and he goes, but then he comes back. We don't really know how much time has passed. The the movie's not very good at time stamping, but, like, he apparently fails in L.A. and then comes home, and then Jeannie's dating some sleazy guy who works at a strip club, and that's it. That's it with Richie. Meanwhile, Jeannie, she does, like, an ice skating competition or something she falls down alex like picks her up but then she starts dating the scumbag she starts stripping at the bad guy's strip club alex takes her out of the strip club and says you need to do better with your life that's the last we see of genie does she pick up her life does she go back to skating does she go back to the strip club we don't know and sometimes in life things don't always wrap up with a neat little bow But I was just thrown off by that. I thought that there should be some kind of resolution, even if it's that they give up on their dreams or one gives up on their dream and one keeps pursuing it. It just felt like a weird cliffhanger thing where we don't really know what happens with their dreams. Did that bother you? Um... I didn't really care as much about the side characters' dreams, to be honest. Um, Fair. And uh, I guess Alex, we do find out at the end. I thought the the, uh, the audition that she does is um, is very good. Again, it's done by a different person. Different people. The breakdancing part that she does is actually done by a man. Oh, she really? has like one body double that does most of her dancing. But then in that scene, there is a man who does the breakdancing part. Did you notice that most of these uh, people uh, auditioning her were like in their 50s? It just seemed odd to me that like there would be no younger people, especially since they, it seems that they're open to like breakdancing and young, uh, you know, contemporary dancing. Like, why are none of these people in their 20s? Um, That 
is a valid point. I didn't really think about that while I watched the movie. The thing that kind of stood out to me more was the fact that one guy was smoking a big fat cigar and another woman was smoking a cigarette. And we've talked about this in countless other episodes of the podcast, but you know, people smoking indoors is always weird when you see it in in an older movie. Also like in a school when a woman is doing a dance audition and will need to breathe you know, don't fucking smoke in that room, asshole, you know? Even if you can, just don't, to be nice. And even worse, they're, like, looking down at their cigarettes and their cigars while this poor young woman is doing an audition of her life. And, like, only, like, halfway through her audition do they look up. Oh, you've interested me enough to look at your audition. Fuck you. This is your job. Look at her audition. Like, I thought that was incredibly rude of them. That's true that it's disgustingly rude. I have heard a lot of stories like that from actors where they're auditioning for a movie and people just don't look up from their phones or from whatever and they're not paying attention. So as shitty as it is that anyone would ever do that to anyone, I think that is somewhat realistic, unfortunately. Okay, um, you know, I I can buy that that actually does happen. There's one part of this film that did intrigue me to really think about uh, after the film. Alex, she's uh, she goes to this very famous uh, dance studio to audition for them, but she's intimidated because she has no uh, specific dance history, and everyone else there is in their ballet outfits and their pirouettes and all, all this stuff, and she walks away. Then she winds up getting a letter, seemingly uh, like out of the blue, that she's been granted an audition. It turns out that Nick had kind of gone behind her back and gotten her the audition. And then she gets really pissed off at him. Like, she screams at him and wants to stop the car and is super-duper mad. And I think she... Does she leave the car? Yeah, Uh, she does. Yeah, she leaves the car and storms away because, in her mind, she wants to make it on her own. What do you think of that? I get it that she would be upset by that. But, I mean, his counterpoint is... Yeah, I just got you the audition because you have no formal training. They probably would have never accepted you to audition. Now you have to do the audition. That's on you. Like he wasn't helping her with that part. So he calls her out on it later and he's like, you're just using me as an excuse because you're afraid. And that's true. And we've seen that earlier in the movie. So it makes sense. And then she does go through with it. I understand her being upset about it at first. I mean, not so upset that she would get out of the car in the middle of a tunnel and nearly get herself killed. That's a clear overreaction there. I understand her being upset about it, but I think ultimately Nick was right. Just to help her get her foot in the door. I mean, is that kind of a shitty thing in life that it's all who you know? Yeah, and I understand also, like, it's not even just who you know, it's who you're sleeping with. Yeah, that can feel a little dirty, icky, whatever. But no, she should still take that opportunity, and then she has to prove it herself. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's like, as Eminem says, if you have one shot, one opportunity to get everything in your, in your life that you wanted, would you take it or let it go? You have a shot. It doesn't mean, you know, you didn't have help along the way, but this is your shot and you got to grab it. She's got to nail the audition. 
And, you know, there's a lot of talk lately about uh, so-called Nepo babies, especially in Hollywood. And yeah. basically, it's not a new thing. It's just becoming more of a, a big phrase. Uh, Hollywood is always, uh, there's nepotism all over Hollywood. And, you sure. know, people do get their foot in the door because their parent is involved in the business. Whether that's fair or not, you know, you can't help who your parents are. If you're going to be an actor, you're going to wind up having to actually have some talent. You know, Michael Douglas, he got his foot in the door because his dad was Kirk Douglas. But then, you know, he has a 40-year career because he has, uh, you know, he has talent. So as long as you don't pretend like, oh, I only got here for hard work. No, you got here because you got help from people, and that's fine. Maybe it's help from your parents. Maybe it's help, uh, in this case, from a loved one who, uh, you know, stuck his neck out to get you uh, an audition. I think that was fine. I understand why she was upset, but I also think it was right for her to, after she thought about it, to go, you know, I think I am going to do this. So I actually thought that the progression of how she acted was was actually perfectly normal. You know, getting help is fine, and, and she wound up having to nail the audition in the end. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I don't know if you read the famous Nepo Baby article no. that came out, but some people were like in complete denial about it. And they're like, this is ridiculous. It's so unfair. And it goes, no, 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 it's not unfair. I mean, life is unfair. If your parents went to Ohio State, you have a better chance of getting into Ohio State. That's just the way life is. If your boss is your dad, you have a better chance of getting into that company. But if you get a job because dad is the owner of the company, don't go around telling everyone that you're a 100% self-made person. You know, as Arnold right. Schwarzenegger says, there is no such thing as a self-made man. You always have help along the way. Sure. Also, like, so many people are Nepo babies. Like, sure, Willow and Jaden Smith. Also, Jamie Lee Curtis, Oscar winner Jamie Lee Curtis. Her dad's Tony Curtis. Her mom was Janet Lee from Psycho. Yeah, like, it happens. It's been happening for generations whatever that's just how it goes oh yeah uh, there's a famous actress now um the unfortunately now late uh lisa marie uh presley uh this actress uh riley Cogue. uh she's a big actress right now so you would never know it she has a different last name than her than her parents um that uh supermodel uh, kaya gerber she's uh she's cindy crawford's uh daughter She's beautiful, like her mother, Cindy Crawford. That's fine that she's a successful model. She obviously has the looks for it. But, you know, if I were her, I would not probably say I got here 100% on, on my own. And that's fine that you get some help along the way. Exactly. But James, let me ask you, do you think that Flashdance stands the test of time? I think this would be the third dancing film we've seen on this podcast. Uh, we saw Footloose. Mm -hmm. uh, another one, it's arguably dancing. It had a lot of dancing in it. Uh, Moulin Rouge. Uh, that's kind of a you know, musical. Yeah, it's more singing and dancing. Yeah, singing and dancing. What about Dirty Dancing? Uh, right, Dirty Dancing. That That's a dancing film as well. And that has a, an interesting plot. And there's abortion. And there's the workers and the high class. And there's a lot going on there. And Footloose, it's an intriguing story. You know, even more so now about a town that gets so conservative that they'll shut down all dancing and kids having fun. Um, while I find Jennifer Beals to be incredibly charming, uh, I thought she was perfectly fine in this film in the, you know, non-dancing parts. I, I just don't really care about this story the the love story maybe nick is miscast or maybe i just don't really like the vibe maybe it's the whole boss thing i'm not sure but the love story was totally a distraction i think if nick was one of her friends 
I think that would have been totally fine. Her friend helps her out, and she doesn't. She's mad at him, maybe her, uh, for for doing this. I think it, it could have been a fine foil to to add a little more plot in there. But she's a steel worker, which is super interesting. She's a woman in 1983 at a steel mill. There's never any payoff of this. And there's a whole strip club area that, uh, you know, there's no payoff. She doesn't learn these like, oh, from the strip club, I learned the sensual dances. And from the people on the street, I learned the break dances. And it's all coming together. And there's going to be something else. I'm going to do some kind of dance move called the the jackhammer or something, you know. The breakdancing thing does pay off. Like she sees it in the in the streets and then she does it in her audition. I'm sorry. I, I'm saying the breakdancing does. I wanted the steel mill part. I wanted that to be part of the plot, not necessarily the dancing. It doesn't have to make the jackhammer dance or something. But it was not part of the plot in any way. Even for her to, you know, yell at Nick and be like, I work in a place with, you know, all men and I have to fight my way to, and I'm a tough, you know, you could have some kind of speech like that. It's just a weird thing for for such an interesting introduction to her that she works at a steel mill. I think because it's based on the real life story of that woman, Maureen uh, Martyr, she was a welder. And I just don't think they went anywhere with that. I I thought that would, that would have been nice. You know, I kind of see this film as sort of like Rocky Four, where there's a very, very loose plot in between training montages and musical montages and long score, you know, fight montages. The difference between that and this film is that the slight plot of Rocky Four I happen to like. I would say more that this film is it's just a little bit too generic to me. It's your hero's journey thing. She fails. The mentor dies. And then, uh, you know, she she stumbles in the beginning with her running out of her audition. But then in the end, she does it and she finds love. And then she loses the love for a little bit and then gets it back at the end. I think all the pieces are there. You know, if someone told me they liked this film, I have no problem with it. Especially if you loved it back in the 80s. I would get it. But but for me, you know, there's other better dance films. Um, I've even seen, you know, more modern ones kind of like this. uh, Save the Last Dance. Uh, You know, bring it on to it, arguably. I just didn't think the plot here was good enough. So, so no, it does not stand the test of time. Uh, What do you think, Al? Does it stand the test of time? So a thing that I've said in other episodes along the way is, man, the plot in this movie is pretty thin, but this movie is up there in terms of thin plots. There is just not a lot of meat here. Like you said, it's just extraordinarily basic, and it's really just about the dance moves. It's funny you said Rocky Four. I don't think that's a bad comparison. The thing that popped into my mind was Glee. I don't know if you watched that TV show But, you know, it was just basically an excuse for songs, for these kids to do acapella versions of pop songs. And in between that, there was soap opera drama. Absolutely. There was MTV uh, with a little bit of plot because there are a lot of great songs in this film and they play almost the whole song. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that, but there's just not a lot there. And honestly, in terms of, it's standing the test of time. Movies aren't like that now. Glee was a TV show and it's off the air, but I don't think you could make a movie today where it's basically just dance numbers and the lead actor isn't doing the dances. Then there's a quote unquote story, but not really. I I just don't think that would fly. I think it would be very, very easy to say, 
this is an open and shut no, it does not stand the test of time. However, I do think someone could also make the counter argument that there's a lot of stuff here that really has stood the test of time. First off, the theme song, which is still an amazing song. It's played on radio. People know it. People like it. The entire soundtrack is good. It's not wall-to-wall bangers. There's a couple of clunkers on there, but it is still a well-known, well-regarded soundtrack. Her look of the sweatshirt with the neck hole that is way too damn big with her shoulder hanging out. I mean, that's sexy as all hell, and people know it. If you showed just that picture to people, not everyone, obviously, but I think a lot of people would be like, oh yeah, flash dance. Also, the thing where she's dancing in the beginning and she pulls that string from above her and the water comes down on her, that has been done, redone, paid homage to, mocked, spoofed a million times. And again, not everyone, but I think a lot of people can identify that as, oh, that thing from Flashdance. I knew that was from Flashdance before I saw this movie. Did you? Oh, yeah, I did. There are a lot of things about this movie that are, I think it's fair to say, iconic. And so it kind of does stand the test of time. Overall, I'm going to say no, that the movie doesn't, just because of the way it's constructed. It's it's just nothing. And I sort of like the theme of this movie, which you could argue is perfectly encapsulated by one lyric in the song, take your passion and make it happen. That's great. That's a great message for a movie. I think that's interesting. It is cliche. It's been in a million other movies, but also... Is that what they're saying? That you can make it happen? Does Alex make it happen? We see her audition, and it seems to go well, but we don't know that she gets into the Academy. Her friends' dreams seem to fall apart. So what is the movie saying? Is it saying that you should still follow your passion anyway? Probably, but doesn't really put a fine point on it. You just couldn't make a movie like this today, and so I'm going to say that it doesn't stand the test of time. That said, I am still really glad that I've seen it. I'm glad that I finally have seen this notable 80s movie, even if it took me 40 years to do so. It's it's a relic of the 80s. And uh, the soundtrack, I mean, th- that stands up if you like it, but uh, not the film. Yeah, but that's going to do it for us this week. Next week, we're going to be talking about another 80s movie that I've never seen. And this time, we're going to bring some friends along. We're going to be talking about The Running Man, starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, with special guests Dom Monfrey and Ben Cerulevich. I'm really excited to see those guys and to talk about that movie. I'm going to guess you've seen The Running Man. Oh, I've seen The Running Man. It's peak 80s Arnold. You're in for a treat. Okay. All right. Looking forward to it. In the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. Talk to us on social media. We are at Test of Time Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Let us know your thoughts about Flashdance and Jennifer Beals and the people who actually did the dancing in this movie, your favorite soundtrack. And uh, we will see you next time, everybody. Take care. Bye. Bye.